If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25. Matthew, chapter 25. And in just a moment, we'll begin reading with verse 14. Uh, I imagine most of you are familiar with a company known as VRBO. And that's just simply an abbreviation for Vacation Rentals by Owner, in case you didn't know that. Well, it was originally started as just a simple web page by an owner of a condominium in Breckenridge, Colorado. And it quickly gained popularity, and the website grew, and later became a service for homeowners to list their properties for short-term rentals. VRBO has grown into more than 2 million properties around the world that travelers or vacationers can rent. And if you've ever scheduled a beach vacation, more than likely you've used VRBO, and there are some really nice properties that are available to rent uh, by the owner. In fact, earlier this year, Anita and I had a weekend getaway where we stayed in a really nice mountain cabin. There's a huge porch overlooking the, the valley with a beautiful view of the mountains. Stainless steel kitchen appliances, big screen television above a fireplace. There's a fire pit out on the back porch. The works. Well, at the end of the weekend, I was sad to have to leave it all behind, but I had to leave it all behind because it was not mine. I was a manager for the weekend. And when the weekend was over, the key code expired and my time was up. Now imagine if I just had this wild idea that I was just going to stay there and, and just take ownership of the property for myself. I would imagine the owner and probably local law enforcement would probably have different ideas. I would have been swiftly escorted off the premises. You know, no matter how beautiful or lovely a place our family has found for a vacation spot, never has the thought occurred to me that the property was mine to do with whatever I wanted to do. Just because I occupied the property for a season of time in no way made me the owner of that property. And temporal oversight and permanent ownership, these are two very different things. The house belonged to someone else. And you're probably like this, but I've always tried to leave the property in as good a shape, if not better, than when I found it. And usually my interests there are selfish because I want to get my deposit back. Uh, don't want to lose the deposit just because you've left a messy place. Now imagine how differently things would be if we approached all of life with this same attitude. The attitude that we're managers and we're stewards of property, which ultimately is not ours, but belongs to God. And so that's what stewardship understands. Stewardship is overseeing what God created, doing it in His best interest, not our own. Uh, with stewardship, God asks us to give a portion back to Him. This is an act of worship and reflects a grateful heart. Uh, giving to others. Uh, this is the practical, tangible way that we demonstrate the greatest commandment to love God with all of our heart and soul, our mind, our strength, and to love our neighbor as we would love ourselves. And so stewardship reminds us that God is the ultimate owner who created and provides all that we have. 
And so really for the next few weeks, I want to spend some time considering this subject, stewardship matters. And it's a major theme all throughout the Bible, this idea that God has entrusted us with the stewardship of life. And what we do with it matters greatly. Now, what exactly do we mean when we refer to stewardship? What does that word uh, mean? Well, the word steward or stewardship itself means administration. And often we come across this word uh, at least nine times throughout the New Testament. Uh, Sometimes it's translated stewardship. Other times it's translated as management. Uh, It's management, for example, in a parable in Luke 16, 2. Or Colossians 1.25, the Apostle Paul recognized that he was a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to him. And so stewardship, this is a word, uh, when we come across it in the Scripture, it translates a Greek word, oikonomia. And that's a compound word that comes from two Greek roots. Oikos, that means house. Uh, Nomos, this means law. And so literally, uh, house law. Our English word economy comes from this same Greek term. So stewardship is an economy. It's a management of household affairs. A steward is simply someone who administers or manages another person's property. And you can find a good illustration of this in Genesis 39 where Joseph, the Bible says Joseph was made overseer of Potiphar's household. He was was the chief steward of the house, put in charge of all that Potiphar had. And in that role, he was expected to manage the household well. He was not to waste the resources of the family, but instead he had to make wise decisions on the owner's behalf. And so to say that you and I are stewards uh, of what we have is to recognize ultimately that God is the one who owns the house. And, And you and I are the managers of that which has been entrusted to us. And if it belongs to God and we're the managers, that means one day we're going to be accountable when we stand before the Lord. And so perhaps there's no better place we could turn to in the New Testament to see this principle illustrated than in a parable that Jesus told here in Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25, verse 14, Jesus tells the parable of the talents. And so if you've got your Bible open there, let's read this passage together. Notice Jesus says that it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one, he gave five talents. To another, two. To another, one to each according to his ability, and then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. 
enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents, and here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had received the one talent, came forward, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground, and here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I want to speak from this subject this morning, the foundation of stewardship. The foundation of stewardship. There's a lot going on in this parable here in Matthew chapter 25, and it's important that we understand the context in which we find this story from Jesus. Now, you'll notice that it's located really in an extended portion of Scripture that emphasizes the coming of the Lord and the reality of man's accountability. If you went all the way back to chapter 24, you'll notice that chapter 24 really begins with Jesus answering a question from the disciples, and the question is this, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Well, Jesus then begins to explain uh, what the last generation will be like. He mentions various signs that will accompany his arrival. And so at least five times in chapter 24 and then on into chapter 25, Jesus makes this statement, no one knows the day or the hour. And so he gives signs that will be characteristic of the period before his arrival. Uh, He describes the birth pains that will result uh, in the kingdom He's given all kinds of details that surround the events of the second coming, but as far as the exact moment and the day or the hour, well, that's not been revealed. Uh, He's not revealed that information. We don't know. And so the reason is that he wants his disciples to live in anticipation of his coming so that there is this constant readiness on our part. And so if the return of Christ is going to happen, but we don't know when it's going to happen, then that's something that demands we be ready at all times. And so it's the unknown character of the coming of Jesus Christ, the unexpected, surprising reality of of what that involves, this motivates us to be ready, which, by the way, it could happen in our generation. Christ could come again before this service is over this morning. And so the thing that Jesus wants to reinforce in the minds of his disciples is this all-important truth, you and I need to be ready. And so in chapter 25, he calls for readiness. 
But he does this by giving three separate parables back to back to back. There's the parable of the virgins in uh, verses 1 through 13. Uh, There's the parable of the talents that we just read uh, here in verse 14 through verse 30. Then there's the parable of the sheep and the goats from verse 31 through the end of the chapter. And all of these parables really make the same point. They drive the same principle home, and the message is made clear. And really, verse 13 is sort of a verse that kind of links them all together. Jesus says, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour of his return. And so, this is a parable about readiness. And if you want to know what readiness looks like, well, Jesus illustrates that for us with this parable of the talents. And so verse 14 begins in this way. It will be like a man going on a journey. What is the it that's being referred to here? Well, it's the kingdom of heaven. It's the arrival of the kingdom when the king himself returns. And so this is really the the, the emphasis then that's being driven home. And think about how this motivates us to be good stewards with all that our master has entrusted to us. So this foundational principle of stewardship, I'm going to throw this up on the screen. You may want to write this down, but the foundational principle of stewardship is this. It's the simple recognition that God owns it all. So I can't think of a better place to begin when we're dealing with this subject of stewardship than with the recognition that God owns it all. All that I have in my possession ultimately has been given to me by God, which means God is the owner I am the steward. God is the owner. I am the manager of that which he has entrusted to my care and to my oversight. And so, again, looking at this parable, we see this truth really driven home. Now, I want to spend at least a couple of weeks on this particular parable, and I don't really envision us getting much past the first point that I really want to make. And that's simply this, stewards are entrusted with the master's property. You'll notice that these stewards in the Lord's story, they are entrusted with property that ultimately did not belong to them, but it belonged to their master. And so Jesus says it's going to be like a journey. The kingdom of heaven is like a journey. A man going on this journey who calls his servants together, he entrusts them with his property. And you'll notice that he gives five talents to one servant, two talents to another servant, and to another servant he entrusts one talent, and he gives to those servants each according to his ability. So he doesn't give them the same amount, but there's sort of the same level of expectation that each servant is given. Each servant has the same obligation. They're to be productive for the sake of the master. They're to take the master's resources and they're to put it to use for the master's interests. And so that's really the point that's being driven home through this parable. So notice a couple of things about this. First, notice the comparison that's being drawn here. Again, notice how verse 14 begins. It will be like a man going on a journey. And if you know what it refers to, again, it's the kingdom of heaven. It's the same idea that's being driven home in this parable as was being driven home in the preceding passage of Scripture. 
So the kingdom is like a man who's traveling abroad. And so in this story, obviously, the man is a man of means, and he wanted to have his money used profitably while he was away. And so he summons his servants together. He entrusts to them the money that he wants them to invest while he's away. And then the language that Jesus uses here in this story is that of comparison. He's telling a story for the sake of driving home a point. And that's what parables really are. A parable is a simple word picture with a profound spiritual lesson. Uh, It's a story from the physical world that's designed to teach this spiritual lesson. And that word parable comes from uh, a couple of Greek words. Para, that means belong. Uh, Balo, this means to throw. And so parable means to throw beside or lay beside. And so the idea is uh, a parable is a story intended to mirror a kingdom principle. That's the comparison that's being made here in this story. And so the man who's going on a journey, obviously this is symbolic of the Lord himself who after his death and resurrection, he ascended to heaven. And he's telling his disciples that he's going to be gone for an unspecified amount of time. And those servants who were entrusted, well, this is me and you. We've been entrusted with the gospel. We've been entrusted with resources. We've been entrusted with relationships. Literally everything that we have at our disposal belongs to God and has been given to us, and God expects us to put it to use for his kingdom's sake. And so Jesus really is helping us understand the difference here between ownership versus stewardship. And and there's a big difference. And so if that's the comparison that's being drawn, uh, notice the second thing here. Notice the property that's then distributed. Though it illustrates this profound kingdom principle, the story that Jesus tells here is very simple. Here you have this man who has servants who work for him. He's going away for an amount of time. He leaves those servants in charge of what he possesses. And then he distributes those possessions out, five, two, and one, thereby giving his servants responsibility in keeping with their capabilities. And the idea is that they're to be trustworthy. They're to be resourceful, productive managers so that the master receives a return when he comes home. And so being gone a long time, he doesn't want to lose that which could be gained, and so he wants to make sure that the servants make the most of their opportunities. So he puts them in charge of his stuff based upon their own capabilities. And and you'll notice that each servant is given a certain number of talents. Now, don't think of talent here in the sense of America's got talent or that kind of thing, which amazes me what people go on television and try to get famous to do. I mean, just various so-called talents. Some are really, really talented, and some are, well, they think they are. But that's not the type of talent that's being referred to or described here. It's not skillfulness or giftedness that that the word is referring to, No, people in the first century world would understand this as a weight of some monetary value. So think of this as a weight of worth more so than an intrinsic ability. A talent was a weight of money, uh, probably gold or silver or something like that. It weighed approximately 75 pounds and would have been the equivalent of 20 years' worth of an average day worker's salary. 
So this is not a small amount of money that these servants are being entrusted with, but rather it's a very large sum of the master's money. And so the master is entrusting his servants with an amount of his wealth, and that amount is quite significant. And each servant receives a significant amount of financial responsibility when he is given his talents. And notice the money is not evenly distributed, but it's distributed on the basis of potential. And the one who had proven to be responsible and capable of handling a large sum He's a trustworthy man. He's given five talents. The fact of the matter is that the master entrusts them with a bag of talents based upon their capabilities. And these servants are all given the same objective. Take what the master entrusts you with and be fruitful with it. Be productive with it for his sake. Put it to use for his sake. And so the emphasis is not so much on the amount The emphasis is what do they do with what they've been entrusted with? (laughs) See, some folks feel like they're insignificant when it comes to this issue of stewardship because they don't have as much as the next man or the next woman. Well, the issue is not the amount that you have. The issue is what are you doing with what you've been entrusted with, whether it be a little or whether it be a lot. And so that's the point that's really being made here. So God has entrusted us as stewards with his property. You know that's a point that's made going all the way back to the earliest chapters of Genesis. God's first assignment for humanity made in his image was for man and woman to be fruitful, to exercise dominion on God's behalf. Genesis 1.28, God intended for humanity to be productive, fruitful. This is in keeping with the Creator's design for humanity. It's one of the reasons why fruitfulness is such an important theme in so many of the parables that Jesus mentions. So it's God's design that He has given man the management of what He's created, not ownership, but oversight. And there's a big difference. If you were to go to that passage in Genesis chapter 1, you don't have to turn there, but God commands Adam and Eve to be fruitful, to multiply. The second part of his command or mandate, uh, he says, I want you to exercise dominion over that which I have created. That just simply means he's placing the management of creation into their hands. And then you get into chapter 2, and you see where God tells Adam that he's, he's, he's been given this responsibility, having been placed in the Garden of Eden, to tend and keep it to watch it for God's sake. Uh, God is essentially saying to the man that he's created, he says, Adam, I want you to oversee my domain. I'm placing it into your care. It's yours to use. It's yours to enjoy. But I want you to do with it what I want done with it. It's not for you to go rogue and do whatever you want to do with it. No, you're to exercise this God-given dominion in keeping with my will in keeping with my objectives for creation. And so Adam and Eve were not to use it for their own selfish purposes, but were to be creative, productive, all for the glory of God. And so you've got this beautiful story at creation of how our first parents were entrusted with the stewardship of creation. 
When we think of stewardship, oftentimes we only think that that applies to our money, but it has to do with so much more than that. It has to do with how we engage in all of life, how we do business, how we treat one another. And so it's a responsibility to exercise stewardship over our home by keeping it, working it. That was the creation mandate given to Adam. It's the same mandate that you and I have today. Now, here's where things went south in a hurry. Adam disobeys. He forfeits dominion. He disobeys God. It's poor stewardship. And, and, and then you see the consequences of that, how it literally affects Adam's entire world. It affects the created order as creation is thrown into confusion and chaos. And now there's a curse. It affects Adam's own family. Not far beyond the Garden of Eden, you, you see Adam's sons. They're bringing an offering. One is being obedient to God, understands stewardship versus ownership. But then you've got Cain. He doesn't abide by the principle of stewardship. He's abiding by the principle of ownership. And in his anger and in his jealousy and in his animosity, you see his iniquity as he murders his own brother. And so there's just these devastating consequences like ripples in a pond that are still going out throughout the created order because of Adam's abdicated responsibility in this issue. Now, aren't you grateful that Jesus Christ came to get right what Adam got wrong? And so that we can be forgiven and so that we can pursue God's original design now through the forgiveness of Christ, being reconciled to God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so stewardship understands God. He's the absolute owner of everything, and I've been given this task of managing what he's entrusted to me. And so in a very real sense, God has entrusted each one of us with a bag of talents. He's made a deposit into each of us, and he's given us spiritual investment opportunities. And that's the point of Jesus' parable here. Seize the opportunity while you have it. Don't let the opportunity slip away whether it be the opportunity to serve God, whether it be the opportunity to do something for God, whether it be the opportunity to come to faith in Jesus Christ, while you have opportunity, seize that opportunity because the time will come when the opportunity will be gone. Now, let me just kind of call a time out here. <laughs> this issue of stewardship basically can be divided out into three primary categories. And just for the sake of emphasis, here are those three primary categories. Time, talents, treasures. All of us have been given time, talents, and a certain amount of treasures. And when I'm using the word talent, I'm sort of broadening the term to include abilities, giftedness, skills, ways in which you've been uniquely made and uniquely gifted by Almighty God. And all of us make choices on how we spend our time, how we invest our energies, how we use our resources. And if I'm the owner, then I can do whatever I want with these precious commodities, right? Well, if I'm the steward, though, that means something entirely different. I had better use these precious commodities 
to please the one to whom they ultimately belong. I've got to manage all of this with the owner's will in mind. And so just consider these three primary categories for just a moment. Uh, To begin with, we all have an amount of time that's been allotted to us. And one of the greatest lessons to be learned in life is how to make the most of the time that we've been given. And actually, time is the most precious resource that you have. Time is more valuable than gold. Money that's lost, money can be replaced, but time that's lost can never be replaced. All of us have an allotted amount of time, and none of us truly know just how much time that we have left. I remember hearing this little poem one time that said something to this effect. When as a child I laughed and wept, time crept. When as a youth I dreamed and talked, time walked. When I became a full-grown man, time ran. And later as I older grew, time flew. And soon I shall find while traveling on, time is gone. You remember the old soap opera days of our lives, how it came on like sands of the hourglass. These are the days of our lives. I remember in the summertime when I would go stay with my grandparents, my aunt and my grandmother would watch Days of Our Lives every time it came on. And dun, 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 in the hourglass, the sand. But it drives home this point that, man, the time is ticking away. Time is quickly passing. That's something that Solomon tells us about in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 where he says there's a time and there's a season and there's a purpose for every season of life. And he uses the word time 31 times in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And and, and in that passage, he makes this point that time is an opportunity. And you better seize the opportunity while you have it. Time is an instrument in the hands of God who uses it for his purpose and for the good of those who trust him. And so we've got certain opportunities that are afforded by time. There are certain objectives that need to be carried out in time, and time carries with it certain obligations. And stewardship recognizes this. No wonder the psalmist says this in Psalm 39, Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you've made my days just a few handbreadths. My lifetime is nothing before you. And surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they're in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. The psalmist is saying, man, he, he, can, he wastes his time, not realizing just how fleeting time really is. And then the psalmist says this in Psalm 90, verse 12, so teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. God, remind us that time is so very important. We've got to make the best use of time. Let's use the time so we won't lose the time. I've heard it said, no man can kill time without also injuring eternity. So time, all of us are allotted a certain amount of time, and we don't know how much we have or how much we have left, so we'd better use it. Now notice, secondly, in addition to the time that we have allotted, we all have an availability of talents that have been supplied to us. And again, not talents in the source of 
the way that it's referred to in Matthew 25, but to broaden that term, I'm talking about abilities, giftedness, ways in which you've been uniquely made, ways in which you've been gifted to serve God. The stewardship of our talents, this involves using the skills and the passions that God has bestowed upon you for his own sovereign purpose. And oftentimes we refer to these as spiritual gifts in the lives of God's people. You know that every person who makes up the body of Christ has been gifted uniquely by the Holy Spirit? Every member of the body is important to the health of the overall body. That's a point that the Apostle Paul makes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There's no insignificant part to the body. Now, we don't all have the same gifts, but we're all gifted in some way for the same purpose, and that's to build up the body. That's to bring glory and honor to the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be uninformed. There are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone, and to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That means you've been gifted by the Holy Spirit to build up the body and to be a blessing to the body. You know, the New Testament actually mentions somewhere around 20 different spiritual gifts. Passages like Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter chapter 4, you'll find various lists or categories of gifts in which you have been gifted. The body has been gifted. There are leadership gifts, administrative gifts, teaching gifts, knowledge, wisdom, uh, prophecy is a gift. Now, that don't mean you can tell the future with precision, but that you can speak boldly. You can give a word at the needed time. You, you, I'm, I'm thankful for those people who have that prophetic gift. Discernment. People gifted to exhort and encourage. Uh, shepherding gifts. People who look out for the welfare of other people. Faith. Those who have an evangelistic gift. Uh, um, um, motivators, church planters, missionaries, people who constantly look beyond the walls, who are constantly helping us keep our focus beyond ourselves but to a needy world. People are gifted and every single person in the body matters and every gift is important for the building up of the body and for the advancement of the kingdom of God. So whether you realize it or not, you are a gifted man or woman. And Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 4, as each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's manifold grace. So he's saying stewardship demands that you take the gift that God has given you and you use it to bless others, to build up others, to serve others, so that in every way God is glorified through Jesus Christ. A.T. Pearson said it this way, everyone has some gift, therefore all should be encouraged. No one has all the gifts, therefore all should be humble. All the gifts are needful, therefore all should be faithful. And I just think that's a really good word. So stewardship recognizes that God has given us an allotted amount of time. God has uh, given you a gift 
a spiritual gift and abilities, talents that need to be stewarded well to the glory of God. And then one third category, listen to this, all of us have an accumulation of treasures that have been entrusted to us. You've got an amount of time that's been allotted to you. There's an availability of talents. And on top of this, there's an accumulation of treasures, and this includes money and possessions, material wealth, relationships with other people that you hold near and dear, your treasures. We treasure our children. We treasure our loved ones. We often treasure our vocations. And listen, if we abide by the principle of ownership rather than stewardship, we end up being controlling and idolatrous and manipulative with our treasures. If ownership is what matters to me, if, if I'm operating like I'm the owner, then I'm going to use my, re, my relationships ultimately so that I benefit. I'll use my resources so that I benefit. I'll heap up more and more for myself so that I can possess and in that way, they become idolatrous. We become manipulative. But you see, stewardship operates from a different understanding. Stewardship recognizes that it's God who owns it all. God is the one who's given to me all that I have, my relationships. My children ultimately are not mine. They belong to him. And so if he wants to call them to the ends of the earth as vocational missionaries, I can't think of a better way for them to serve God in that way or if he wants them to move to another state. Now, oftentimes, these are issues that we parents really wrestle with. Ownership versus stewardship. It's a totally different way of, totally different way of looking at your possessions and your, your relationships, your stuff. So here, here's, here's the question I just want to make, and I just want to ask you, and then we'll close. What principle are you abiding by? The foundational principle of stewardship the recognition that God owns it all? Or are you operating by the ownership principle? What I have is mine. I may part with a little bit of it, but I, what, all I, what I have is mine. You know the name John and Charles Wesley, founders of the, the Methodist movement, but their father's name was Samuel, Samuel Wesley. And Samuel Wesley was a clergyman in the Church of England, and at one point he lived in a village known as Epworth, and he was the pastor there in the town. It was a large parish that he was entrusted with, and uh, it was a rough place. He had a lot of pastoral challenges. He found people living in an immoral state. He was a bold witness, bold preacher, and that got him in trouble because it really elicited a hostile response from the people of the town. Well, his son John, John Wesley was born while he was the pastor there in Epworth. But one biographer said this of Samuel Wesley and his ministry there, the wretches who hated their pastor had twice attempted without success to set his house on fire, and they succeeded in a third attempt. That'll bless your heart. So it was on the night of February 9th, 1709, there was a fire that swept through the Wesley's family home. At midnight, Samuel Wesley was awakened by a shout from the street. He flung open his bedroom door and he found his home filling up with smoke. He woke his wife, Susanna, 
their three eldest daughters. He then raced to the nursery where the family maid was sleeping with the five younger children. Well, the abrupt entrance of Mr. Wesley and the smoke, this greatly startled the maid. Once she kind of came to, she gained presence of mind, grabbed the youngest child, Charles, and hastily urged the others to follow her out of the house. Three of the older children did, but little John, he was six years old, he remained sound asleep. The family assembled outside the burning house. A few of the children had climbed through the windows. Other children had escaped through a small door that led out into the garden. But all the while, John is asleep in his bed, still upstairs. He finally woke up. He called out for the maid, and his little cries were heard from the street. And so Samuel Wesley darted back into the house, and he attempted to climb the stairs, which were already engulfed in flames. And fearing that John was lost, Samuel Wesley knelt down in that burning hallway, and he cried out to God. With the flames licking the ceiling of his room, John attempted to run through a doorway, but he found it impossible. He then climbed onto a chest near the window and was spotted by those who were in the yard downstairs. And so quickly, one man stood on the shoulders of another man, reached out for the terrified child, and at the exact moment John Wesley was in his rescuer's arms, the roof caved in the house and the house was completely engulfed in flames. Now, after having witnessed all of that and the horrors that had just transpired in those moments, Samuel Wesley, it said, he knelt down in a cry of relief, and here's what he said. Come, neighbors, let us kneel down. Let us give thanks to our God. He has given me all of my children. Let the house go. I'm rich enough. He understood the foundational principle of stewardship, didn't he? God owns it all. Like Job before him, who understood the foundational principle of stewardship, God owns it all. The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Would you stand with me as we pray this morning? What principle are you abiding by? The principle of ownership or the principle of stewardship? You realize all that you have in your possession, whether it be the time that you have, the talents you've been blessed with, the treasures that you have, all of that ultimately belongs to God. And we hold it in our trust for just a limited amount of time because the time is coming when we stand before God and we're going to give an account of our stewardship, aren't we? That's the principle that's really being driven home in this story from Jesus. The master, he divvies out his goods, gives them to his servants and says, I want you to be industrious, be fruitful, be productive, keep my interest in mind because the time is coming when I'm coming home. Every head bowed and every eye closed. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior this morning, whether you're here or watching online, it's not by coincidence that you've heard this message or that you have the opportunity right there where you are to bow, to turn from your sin, 
believe the good news that Christ died for your sin and that he rose again. Call upon him while you have time, while you have opportunity, and be saved. Lord, as stewards, we recognize that you're the owner of all that we have. God, we want to be faithful managers for your sake. Lord, there are times in my life I find it so easy to worry over stuff, to be grumpy and critical when I don't have what I think that I need at a particular moment in time. And it's then, Lord, that I'm so forgetful that I serve the God who owns the cattle of the thousand hills. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You're a good, good father, and you've given good gifts to your children. God, give us grace to abide by this principle of stewardship, recognizing that you are the owner of it all. In Jesus' name, amen.